Hello and welcome to the Film Classification Podcast from the BBFC. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. It's simple. Kill the Batman. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Yes, it's podcast number 17. Welcome along to the BBFC. My name is James Blatch. Thank you very much indeed for downloading our last one of 2013. But don't worry, we'll be back in 2014. And my co-host for this episode is Emily Fussell. Hello. Hello, an old friend of the podcast. We've done this before. We have done this before. One of the examiners here in the building. And Emily, you're going to be talking about anime a little later. Yeah, I'm going to try, yes. Yes. It's uh, an interesting subject area that occasionally throws up some um, wow moments when you're classifying. It really does. It does. Um, But as always, we're going to start with a bit of a news roundup and what's caught our eye. I noticed that In Between Us 2 is in production in Australia at the moment. I saw that, yeah. They have just started filming and they're going to be back in the UK filming uh, in January. The reason I mention it is because the first film did give us right at the top end of 15 into 18 on occasions and uh, in fact trims were made to the film to get it down to 15 and I think the 18 stronger uncut version was released on physical media the uncut never before seen version as they probably marketed it Um, I wanted to mention this story as well actually it's a link with Australia because at Screen Australia which is their funding body for um, for films uh, in the Antipodes is considering funding peer-to-peer distribution. So peer-to-peer distribution is normally how pirates upload films that they've bought and then allow other people to download them for free. It's the main way that pirate uh, pirating works. Um, so Screen Australia thinking about using it and perhaps funding a film up front to a certain amount and then not expecting to get any money back from it, just allowing it to be distributed after that, which I suppose is one way of circumnavigating piracy. And it also kind of feeds in as an innovative way, perhaps, of dealing with the fact that um, here in the UK, the BFI a study they've just published shows that only 7% of films produced in the UK were profitable last year. It's a very low figure, isn't it? Yeah, so crazy. I suppose Screen Australia are thinking, well, they're not going to make profit anyway, so why don't we try and do the funding up front and then allow it to be distributed? It's an odd one, though, because if you do start making a profit with a film, clearly you want that to be paying for future productions and all the rest of it. Um, so I don't know, we'll just keep an eye on that, see what happens in Australia with their, their scheme. And talking of piracy... Good evening. I'm Ron Burgundy. And I'm here to tell you about making the right choice when it comes to your evening's entertainment. (laughs) There's only one surefire way to get real moments worth paying for. And let me tell you from bitter personal experience, it doesn't involve succumbing to the temptation of smelly pirate hookers. You need the real thing. Oh yeah, prime visual real estate. The right music, the right lighting, the right people. You don't want to be left feeling sad, lonely, and ripped off on a Saturday night. So the next time you think about doing it on the cheap, just don't do it at home. Go to the cinema. By the beard of Zeus, what is this? Is this film piracy? For that shimmering pretender to television's crown? What the hell is this thing? I thought I was giving these young bucks the benefit of my wisdom on the best way to get a solid serving of gentleman's relish at a reasonable rate. The love of Pete. 
The excellent Ron Burgundy ahead of Anchorman 2 doing a trailer for findanyfilm.com. Our friends were co-located in this building at 3 Soho Square uh, who worked tirelessly on behalf of filmmakers and people in the film industry to protect their intellectual property. And uh, you'll see that uh, in theatres doing the rounds at the moment. There's some really good anti-piracy adverts doing the round at the moment. There's that great one where all the effects disappear slowly. Yeah, that was another findanyfilm.com. That was brilliantly yeah, conceived, really wasn't it? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, they are good. Okay, let's move on. For this edition's interview, we're going to talk to the boss. It's the end of the year, a chance to look back. I've been up to speak to David Cook. So pick out your filmic highlights from the year. Well, I did an interview with the Sunday Times on a film called Blue is the Warmest Colour, which... Um, was a, a, an interesting case. It's um, the, the issue really was um, whether we could have given it a 15, given the um, the lengthened um, nature of the sex scenes in the films, um, some of which were lesbian sex scenes. Although, as, as you know, we don't um, discriminate on grounds of sexual orientation, and that um, led me into the question of um, whether artistic merit was something that we could take into account as well, because we tend not to, t- we tend to be a bit coy, don't we, at the BBFC about talking about whether a film is actually good or or, or not, um, for understandable reasons. And I, I think the position, as, as I worked it out, was that um, you do take into account on the borderline. You know, if you've got a choice, say between 15 and 18, as we had here. You, you can look at um, artistic merit and you can also look at what in our jargon we call audience address you know would there be an audience below the age of 18 for a film so we did actually take account of both of those things but the key point was that they can't trump a classification decision which is clearly the correct one and in this case um, it, it was just clear that the sex scenes in Blue, Blue is the Warmest Colour were, were too long and uh, just too sustained to be um, within our policy for and precedence for what's allowable in sex at 18. So, sorry, sex at 15. So it got an 18, which I think my Sunday Times interview thought was a bit of a shame. So I was trying to explain how that had come about, but it was a... It was an interesting decision, and it is a very interesting film as well. I mean, it raises a couple of things. First of all, just to say people haven't seen it, the um, actually I have to say, when I read the synopsis for Blue is the Warmest Colour, I was put in mind of a Rochelle Rochelle, <laughs> the Seinfeldian uh, erotic journey from Milan to Minsk, and it, it is a, a sexual journey. Was it playing on your mind the fact that there was something for teenagers in the film, in that it was about a teenager's uh, journey, you know, sexual awakening? Yes, I mean, the, the, um, so much has been written about the, the controversy around the lesbian sex scenes that I think it's slightly diverted attention from the fact that w- what the film really does is focuses very closely on a, a group of people uh, kind of in, in their late teens and then emerging from school life into adult life. And what the, the interesting thing about the film really is it observes them all incredibly closely. That's w- what makes it su- such a good and interesting film. Um, but yes, it, I, I, I think I didn't need any persuading that there were going to be people under 18 who um, 
would potentially be interested in the film. But as I say, the, um, the key argument was that that couldn't trump what was the correct classification in terms of how we apply our guidelines. I mean, it does raise another question, which is something that um, we do, as you know, think about here from time to time. How will all of this look in 20 years' time? And, you know, you always wonder which are the things you're doing which are, which are going to look silly with the passage of a bit of time. And, you know, maybe norms will, will shift. I don't, I, I don't know. What I'm clear about is there was just too much of it for it to be a, a credible sex at 15 decision as things stood in the here and now. Yeah. Well, there were still some films from 40 years ago that looked pretty strong, particularly the early 70s. <laughs> you look back now, so not everything... Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned a comparison. I, I reminded me slightly of My Summer of Love, which is a, a film from a few years ago. But um, the sex was a um, good deal stronger and more sustained than in, in the earlier film. Yeah. OK, uh, well, let's move on. But keeping the sex mm. theme, Don John is an exploration, really, of how pornography has entered everybody's homes and, uh, and lives through the internet. Yes, I mean, in some ways, it was a similar kind of issue. Again, it was the 1815 borderline. Again, there was a question about um, whether there might be appeal to an audience below um, be- below 18. Again, um, there might be questions about artistic merit again. Um, in, in this case, we, we did think it was um, quite, quite borderline, and... Um, there was a possibility, I think, of cuts for 15, um, but that wasn't the route that the distributor chose to go in the end. I think the, um, the concentration ju- during the first 20 or 30 minutes on use of porn was just a bit too heavy for, for it to, to get a 15, but it was, you know, raised some thought-provoking issues. The devil's in the detail with sex, mm. really, isn't it? And when, yeah. uh, as you say, however overwhelming you may feel about some of the other arguments are, there's got to be a line, and it, it, it's, it's something that can offend people quite quickly. Yes, and we've got to be consistent. I think that's the, you know, the only fair thing we can do for both the public and for filmmakers, and um, we, we just thought that the focus on porn... Uh, you know, could have been more detailed, but it was still quite strong, and there was just a bit too much for it to to get to 15 in the current climate. Okay, well, let's move on to one or two of the other things that that go around. A stat was uh, was dropped this week that uh, I really noticed, which is that the Doctor Who anniversary broadcast by BBC One recently picked up 1.7 million downloads the day after for people to watch it online. Mm. Now, there's an indicator that people have fairly radically change the way that they consume film mm. and television. Mm. And, of course, we've adapted to that. We have done for a few years. How is that scheme going, the watch and rate scheme? It's, uh, it's going well. It's had a bigger uptake during the year. It's, um, just to explain, in, in effect, it's like a kind of um, streamlined version of, of what we do for films that come under our statutory remit and the significance of this area that we're now talking about that includes watch and rate is it's it's the area where we have no powers no legal powers to compel people to come to us fortunately um, lots of people do still want to come to us for downloads because they recognize that 
our um, decisions and our symbols are very trusted and there's lots of backup in terms of the information we provide, the education work we do. But I'm very pleased with um, the way Watch and Race is, is going. It's just one of our initiatives in this area. And I think it's really significant that people like Netflix come to us to get House of Cards and Hemlock Grove classified, which they are not legally obliged to do. <clears throat> but they do it because they think it's the right thing to do. So with this big switch to uh, consuming online, I know there's lots of work going on elsewhere in an effort to bring some form of regulation to an area that looks on the face of it almost, well, is pretty unregulated. We're very busy in this whole area. We've got a whole load of initiatives. Um, I'm having a stint at the moment on the executive board of something called UKIS, which is the United Kingdom Child Internet Safety Council, so I'm getting involved in the sort of uh, public policy discussions about these things at the moment. Um, there have been some other very significant developments during the year. It's not just been about the growth of uh, watch and rate. We reached an agreement with the mobile operators to uh, run a framework for material on mobile phones, and that uh, took effect from the 2nd of September. How does that actually work, then? What do they have to do? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a completely different system from the, the classic uh, BBFC um, classifying a film system. It's essentially to do with um, whether material is of an adult nature or not. So it's basically a, a binary decision. We provide a framework which is based on the BBFC's standards and guidelines which in turn derives from um, public consultation. The mobile operators, in effect, apply this themselves, but then we provide an advice service for hard cases and we provide a complaint service as well. So if people think that they've got the wrong decision, then we can take a, a view on that for them. And so far, touch wood, you know, that seems to be running very smoothly. And then we're um, doing something else interesting, which is um, we developed a tool for racing user-generated content. And we've worked very closely with our Dutch colleagues, NICAM, to um, get this up and running. And we are going to be trialling it with an Italian company. Uh, our Irish colleagues have joined in. And um, it's not designed for professional content. It's designed for rating user-generated content. And w what it can do is it can act as a kind of crowdsourcing tool so that you can get the results um, as a sort of table that would say, well, um, you know, 20% would have given this a, an adult-level rating, 30% um, would have given this a mid-level rating, and so on and so on. Um, and it has a number of very interesting features. It's, um, it's based on a kind of uh, automated algorithm. And when you hover over the various questions, you get help text, which is different depending on whether you're in the UK or in Italy or in the Netherlands. So it's tailored to the situation in each of the, the participating countries. Another thing which is very important for the future is you get an instant result. You know, there is no turnaround time. As soon as you've finished doing the, uh, doing the box ticking, 
um, you get a result. Now, we're not, as I say, um, saying this is suitable at the moment for applying in more complex, complex areas of you know, feature films and so on where you need to be making contextual judgments all the time. But um, we're showing what's possible by doing this, this kind of work. And the, the sheer volume of stuff that gets uploaded online, I mean, the YouTube every now, now and again tell us how many hours go up every minute, means that you do need something that's different from an examiner sitting and watching because that's just not practical, is it's it? It's really important, I think, that people understand that we're not, you know, kind of Canute-like facing the internet saying, you've got to do it the traditional BBFC way, watch it all through, make contextual judgments. That's just not going to work for you know, lots of the, the material that's there. But um, So that's why we're experimenting with all these different approaches. But um, I think underlying it is a very important public policy argument. You know, just because you've got the thing through a download or through the internet, does that make it any less risky? Chances are it probably makes it more risky. Um, you know, I, we, we had during the year, didn't we, the debate about um, videos or clips to do with beheadings and so on. And as you know, um, we, we um, have developed a, you know, a whole doctrine and a series of precedents for dealing with these kind of things. So you almost feel a bit frustrated, don't you? You think, mm. you know, we can actually help with this kind of issue. Yeah. David, thank you very much indeed for your time. Uh, have a nice break and we will certainly catch up, I think, about the guidelines at some point in the new year. Thanks very much, James. David Cook talking to me earlier. Good, uh, good all-round interview with uh, David. Now, we're going to talk about anime, Emily Fussell. We are. We are. So, Emily, let me first of all ask you, for those people who don't watch anime, not particularly familiar with it, what is anime? Well, basically, it's Japanese cartoons, um, but it's quite tricky for us because those Japanese cartoons can range from complete kiddie friendly U-rated stuff to almost pornographic sometimes even pornographic 18 rated stuff so it's quite a broad genre yeah it is and hentai is that the name of it hentai yeah that's the that's the really strong stuff is that a trade name or is that just a generic title I think it's just a generic title for it because people Um, often use the word manga don't they to describe anime it's another name for it but actually manga is a company that produces some anime yeah and also manga is commonly used to refer to the comics so the the stuff that often anime is based on is manga which is the sort of two-dimensional comic yes comics. the actual thing you read the physical thing yeah the physical yes. thing that you read yes okay. um so rather than anime which is which is the moving pictures yeah okay so um why is it for us why is it sometimes tricky to classify cartoons from japan it's quite hard because sometimes you are thrown complete curveballs. So you will think that you are watching a series about a bunch of school children fighting aliens or whatever they do or inhabiting the bodies of giant robots. Um, and then suddenly one of them will stick their finger up another one's bum or they'll show yep. their boobs or something like that. So it's, it's often you're throwing curveballs in the middle of what you think you've got a grasp on what it is and sometimes it's just not what you think it is. And it's that, what's interesting about that, and those are real examples, I can remember seeing both of them, um, what's interesting about it is that you can watch you know, Hollywood films and UK films will always try and subvert 
normalities, you know, conventions, weren't they, from time to time. But there's nothing quite as jarring as watching what you think is basically aimed at young adolescents and has what we would consider totally inappropriate material and uh, imagery. And then you, don't, you sit there thinking, well, who is this aimed at and what are we doing it for? And of course, it's, it's from a, another part of the world and a different, slightly different culture and they do things differently there, don't they? A bit like the past. So I suppose how we then classify it for a UK audience, do you make an allowance for the fact that the audience will know that and expect it? We kind of do. We make an allowance for the fact that the, the people who watch anime, anime generally tend to be fans and they will be completers and they will want the whole series and so they will know the backstory but at the same time we have to classify it for UK audiences so if it does have um, some stuff that's you know much more sexual than than you would normally pass at PG then we would put it up to 12 um, some anime series which is really rare because people look at them and they think oh it's just a cartoon um, will be passed at 18 for very strong violence even because Weirdly, with anime, you can almost show more detail than you can do with live action. Um, so you've got, we had a, a recent thing submitted called Dead Man Wonderland, which was an anime series, and it had an actual eye gouging. And if you're showing that in a film, you know, you're sort of looking at it and it's special effects. But with anime, you could actually see the sort of thumbs going right into mm. the guy's eye sockets and poking the eyeballs out. The sort of stuff that's sort of hyper-realistic and makes it even stronger than, than showing something like that in, in live do. action. Action. Listen to this on their lunch break, by the way. Oh, so, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the olive in the salad, then. Yeah. Um, okay. Boiled eggs. So you have that, which I guess is that, I mean, that's common to animation generally, but most animation genres, unlike anime, perhaps don't go down that route quite so often as anime does. Yeah, though I think more and more, as as you have sort of adult animated films, like things like Waltz with Bashir mm. that came in a few years ago, um, Persepolis that there are animated films aimed at adults so maybe people do have an understanding now that just because it's animated doesn't mean that it's aimed at kids um, but the specific problems for anime is that sometimes it really does look like it's aimed at kids and quite a lot of them are set in schools and so the characters will be wearing school uniform but in Japan kids wear school uniform quite rigid school uniform until they're quite old so they can be of age be sort of you know 16 18 yeah. years old and be wearing tiny schoolgirl outfits that to us look a bit weird but actually that happens in Japan. Yeah, well let's let's talk about some of the different areas more specifically then and uh, we'll start with that. The schoolgirl theme is something that's fairly prevalent in anime and lots and lots of um, anime series feature younger characters and if I'm, I'm going to be slightly generalist about it but this is very typical of an anime series. It'll be adolescents, the girls will have big boobs, tiny skirts and the camera angles will accentuate the short skirt they and will the have boobs. Lo very low camera angles often so low camera angles looking up and and high camera angles looking down and, yep. and again right from the beginning where you're looking at these effectively what childlike characters are interacting you're thinking why have they made these choices in the way that they're presenting them and yeah so that's often how it can start and as an examiner you're sitting there just thinking oh slightly uncomfortable with this perhaps at you and pg just even though nothing overtly sexual has happened. But then we've had a few that have really crossed the line quite quickly. It was La Blue Girl Returns. The characters were presented more or less as children. They were dressed in uniforms. They were physically quite small with these accentuated features. Uh, and then they started engaging in that case in sexual activity, actually explicit sexual activity. Yeah. And we didn't really have anywhere to go with that except to think that this potentially encouraged an interest in underage sex they weren't presented as adults and in that case rather extreme example that was removed yeah it was um and 
exactly because because they were children they weren't protect, they weren't sort of grown-ups in school uniform they were quite clearly meant to be children and the way that they talked the way their faces looked as well sort of emphasized the fact that they were children and obviously that's not appropriate so we removed those scenes from that work sexual violence comes into some of the stronger uh, animes as well and i remember very early on in fact in this very room Emily, when I was being trained as an examiner probably seven or eight years ago, I remember being introduced to the concept of tentacular rape, which is not something that crossed my radar before I joined the BBFC, along with quite a few other things I should point out. Um, and it was quite a thing for a while, wasn't it? And it's, it's raised itself again recently. This is creatures that have tentacles, as in octopus. Yeah, like a giant octopus, which will sort of grab a lady in one tentacle and insert the other tentacle into the lady's orifices in yeah. an unpleasant manner. Or several tentacles, possibly, yeah. at one time. And uh, again, it was a bit of a thing, wasn't yeah. it? In, in it a- were, yeah, there were a, quite a few. Um, the sort of sex to those... They were called the Darkness series, I think they were called. Yeah. And, and I think Le Blue Girl Return, again, had some of that yeah, in it as well, exactly. the tentacle, uh, tentacular rape. Which seems like <laughs> a like really a band, weird thing to be writing in your reports. There's, a, there's an expression, I think, when you did a presentation about anime uh, with John Wagland to other examiners. By the way, th- what you can hear is we are, I should say, we're recording this with the buildings being knocked about at the moment. We're recording this directly above our theatre. And so occasionally you're going to hear the rumble of... Jean-Claude Van Damme or something doing something in theatre yeah I think I checked and there wasn't something that sounded like it was going to be too noisy oh really well it just was then (laughs) anyway I can hear on here yeah maybe a trailer I remember um, in a presentation you and John Wagland gave about anime uh, talking about the different uh, genres and types within subgenres within anime and there's something called fan service which is where you know that you've got your predominantly male audience for a particular type. This is an example of a particular type of, um, of series, and therefore there will be some nudity and sexualization in it. Actually, it's, this yeah, is probably Yeah, and I quite like that term, fan service, as well. It's like, we know why you're watching yeah. this. You like the one with the blue hair, don't you? <laughs> We're going to show you her cleavage now. And it's, yeah, exactly, they drop those bits in. Because of Japan's history, the post-apocalyptic scene is very prevalent, yeah, I really think, in, um, uh, in in anime and Spirited Away is the film that most people will mention if you talk to anyone about anime that's the one they've been to see uh, a film that did very well in the UK yeah it did and I think quite a lot of the Miyazaki films have done quite well they seem to and and they get submitted to us for cinema release um, in Japanese um, with English subtitles and also dubbed into English so I think it's quite interesting uh, and that's a sort of indication of the breadth of the audience that people are going to see it with subtitles as well as wanting to go and see it dubbed with their kids because yeah. a lot of the, the Miyazaki films are generally U-rated, sometimes PG, but they are aimed at children. Yeah, quite atmospheric. Okay, well, I'm quite pleased we had a little positive upturn at the end of this conversation, because I think you're right, Emily, it sounds like, and it's inevitable in this building, when we sit and think afterwards about a particular genre, we are going to concentrate on the ones that gave us problems and were difficult. But there's no doubt that within anime, there are cultural differences between the way that stuff's presented in the UK and the US in particular, and it jars, um, and it's quite difficult sometimes to place it. Yeah, it's a crazy watch. I mean, you you really do not know what you're going to get, especially if you get a new series that of stuff that hasn't been in before, and you you have no clue. There is no 
clue in the title, no clue when you see the characters lined up when they're first introduced to you. So it's it's quite an interesting adventure delving into an anime series. You have to keep your eyes on the screen. Yeah, yeah. Watch every frame. Yes. Emily Fussell, thank you very much indeed. Have a very nice Christmas. You too. And a good new year. Thank you, dear listener, for staying with us through the anime discussion. Uh, You will be rewarded with lots of interesting stuff next year. Do join us again in 2014. Thank you to our editor, Catherine Anderson. We'll be back. See you next year. Bye.